This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. How does one feel fully or completely present to those unpleasant emotions like fear or self-centeredness? without inappropriately indulging them. How do we stay present for that which is difficult without indulging the emotions? You know, I don't believe that we, I don't believe that we almost ever indulge the emotions. I think the indulgence has to do with the stories we tell ourselves and the things that we do with those stories. Fear comes, it's just fear. Anger comes, it's just anger. But then the story comes, he did, and she did, and they said, and I'm going to. You know those stories? And then they lead to all the kinds of actions and, in many cases, the consequences of suffering that follow. I'm not worried about people when they're on a retreat or in meditation or in different dimensions of their life weeping or feeling their outrage or their fear. I actually worry more when people can't feel those things. It's not the problem of indulging emotions or being lost in them, but in believing the stories that we tell. So one of the best practices or one of the great things that one can learn in meditation is to sit and allow the energies of life to arise and fall as they do through our being and to bow to each when they're strong as they come, 
to name them as we've talked about, to acknowledge them. Oh, self-pity. Boy, I hate self-pity. Oh, it's not just self-pity. It's self-pity and hatred. That's interesting. Self-pity, self-pity, <laughs> hating, hating. And you just let yourself this. This is really uh, disgusting. Disgust, disgust. <laughs> but I'm doing really well with this. Oh, pride, pride, right? <laughs> and you simply allow the experience of this human realm of feelings to be as it is. And then the story comes, I shouldn't have done that, I'm so stupid, or I'm so terrible, like the Oriah Mountain Dreamer story I read to you that everybody was cracking up about, because you can all imagine someone's answering machine accidentally being on after you hung up, can't you? And things that we, if we haven't said it, we've at least thought it. But generally, we've actually said it. So it takes, the mind has no pride, as we've said, it will do anything, right? And it takes a certain humor and allowance to say, okay, here is the feeling, and to enlarge our capacity to feel without necessarily believing the story. The story is one thing, and often the stories are, um, they're wrong. (laughs) I have to put it as bluntly as I can. They're just a story. Our perceptions are, are phenomenally biased. There's a professor at Harvard, a psychologist, I wish I could remember his name, who did a perceptual study a few years ago um, in which he had two uh, groups of basketball players, several people dressed in black, several people dressed in white, passing basketballs back and forth on a basketball court um, and uh, and made a video, a three-minute video of them passing the basketballs back and forth. And the task for those watching the video was to sit there and count how many passes there were in those three minutes, you know, if you were, and and see if you could be accurate in seeing how many passes were made back and forth. There were two basketballs, so it was kind of complex. Partway through this three-minute short video or two-minute video, a woman comes out wearing a gorilla suit, looking like a gorilla, comes up in front of the camera near the center of the basketball where the basketballs are whizzing by, dances a little bit, makes gorilla grimaces, and then disappears, and is there for like 10 seconds. (laughs) At the end of the two or three minute video, the psychology professor asks people how many passes there were of the basketball and duly records their number. Then he asks the people, did you notice anything else in the video? I mean, this is right in the middle of the video, in the middle of the room. 50% of the respondents said no. 50% said no. Didn't notice anything. 43 basketball passes. That's all they saw. Then he said there was no strange things that came into the room, no animals, no gorillas, nothing. No, 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 just basketballs. Then he plays it again. They are dumbfounded. This is a true psychological study, but it is also a portrait of guess who? <laughs> Moi, as Miss Piggy says, right? And, and you as well. Our perceptions, our stories are so created by a particular point of view. You know that to be true, don't you? So what's needed is a great space around the stories 
the ability to feel the emotions as they are and to notice here's a whole tale oh it's a you know Dostoevsky and Russian and there's a lot of <laughs> sadness and soul and depth to it that's a pretty good story about it but actually it's just a feeling of loneliness or of grief that we have to respect and honor because it's our humanity or it's the feeling of fear or anger that we have to respect and if we learn to be with the feelings and not take the story so seriously, then our response can come from a place of wisdom rather than the place of how it should be. Why is desire considered a cause for suffering when for me it is the impetus for joy, creativity, satisfaction, etc.? What do you think? Hmm? What's your experience with desire? There is an unfortunate translation that has come partly due to the way that the Buddhist texts use the word desire. So the word is really associated with a kind of clinging or grasping. And partly because some of Buddhism has been translated over the centuries in a rather Victorian and kind of Christian way, where desire and sin get mixed up somehow. Um, if you look in your own experience, you will discover different kinds of desire. There is wise desire, and there's unskillful desire. Some people might say, desire to awaken, desire for enlightenment is a wise desire. But even that is kind of tricky, isn't it? Because it can motivate us to meditate, to practice, to do those things that can help us to awaken, to cultivate compassion and forgiveness. But also even the desire for enlightenment, if it's pushed to its extreme, can make us rigid, goal-oriented, leave us... uh, remove us from the reality of the present, which is where awakening takes place, into some fantasy realm about how it's supposed to be, and actually take us from the possibility of awakening. So what I would suggest, instead of answering the question directly, is that we begin to study desire and see when it is skillful. Is there wholesome desire? Is there a an intention of the heart, we'll call that a form of desire, to do something that brings joy or creativity or fulfillment? Is there another kind of desire that has controlling in it and grasping and fear or the endlessness, you know, the kind of desire where it gets fulfilled but inside we don't feel like enough and as soon as we get that, then our hand reaches out because, well, we got that, but... Now we need the next thing and the next one and the next one. Do you know that kind of desire where there's no end to it? What is a healthy desire? Can we actually sit in our meditation or walk through the marketplace and notice the desires that come and notice which ones are wise and which ones are based on fear and the small sense of self and a kind of neediness that is never going to be satisfied by anything outside. Because if we can learn with that attention, we become really free. Of 
Could you please touch on feelings of jealousy and how to work through or deal with them in meditation? Jealousy is one of the most difficult emotions, isn't it? It's a lot of good theater done about jealousy and a lot of great works of art done around jealousy because it has such intensity. It's really a fire. So I think the first thing is just to study it and feel what it does in us and feel its pain and then sense more deeply the story that it tells because it always has a story with it, doesn't it? And the story is usually not even so much about the other person or the other situation. If we really listen, the story is about ourselves. And I would simply ask in that entanglement with jealousy, again, the practice of meditation, of letting oneself feel it, not to suppress it, but to experience the the fire of it, and then to notice all the script that goes across on the scene, on the screen. And then ask yourself as you hear the story and it describes you, because it will, the story will describe you, the jealousy story. Is this who I really am? Ask yourself, is this who I really am? There's a question here about ego. Talking about how you work with the ego spiritually or how you get rid of the ego. I don't use the word ego very much, almost never in teaching or talking about spiritual life and meditation practice because it's a somewhat confusing word. It's used in different ways. If you speak about it with Western psychologists or psychiatrists who are trained, there's something called the healthy ego. It's that aspect of the psyche that functions to organize and direct our lives. On the other hand, a lot of times people talk about spiritual life as getting rid of our ego. which would be a contradiction for Western psychology. If you get rid of the ego, you're unable to function very well. But what's meant in that spiritual parlance, I think is more like getting rid of our self-centered ego, or what one of my teachers called the needy ego, or the frightened ego. That part of ourself that we could call the body of fear, the small sense of self. My own experience is, that you don't need to get rid of anything. That actually who we are is already as we should be. You don't have to be any different than you are at all. You just have to remember who you really are. Because what you'll discover is that some of the time there operates this needy ego, this small sense of self. And if you judge it, I hate that. I want to get rid of that. I don't want to be needy. I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be jealous. You know those voices? That, I suppose they would just call the superego, right? That's another part. One part of the ego beating the other part. Long enough, wouldn't you say? We do know how to do that. But, I mean, there are places where you can pay people to do that to you if you really insist. 
But the idea in awakening isn't to beat anything. We talk about meditation and coming back to ourselves. The image that's used is training the puppy. You know, stay, sit, stay. Does the puppy listen? It runs around, it gets up, take the puppy and bring it back, sit, stay, over and over. How many times before the puppy learns stay? You'll notice it's the same for your own attention. Stay, come back to sit. Does your mind listen? As we've said, it's a lot worse than the puppy. It makes much bigger messes than a puppy. I mean, the puppy just <laughs> pees, you kind of clean it up. But the messes that your mind has gotten you into can take years to remedy. <laughs> but the idea in bringing yourself back to what's present, to what's true, is not to beat the puppy. You don't want to get the stick out and beat the puppy. The puppy doesn't like it, and you don't feel terribly good about it afterward either. So the idea also is not to beat the ego into submission, the small sense of self that's terrible. I have to get rid of it. There is a small sense of self. No one in this room will have a day go by where they don't experience sometimes feeling small, feeling this sense of limitation or insecurity. The place of wisdom doesn't judge that. The place of wisdom in us can bow to that and say, yes, that too. But it knows, as we know, that that's not who we really are. The place of wisdom has tolerance and compassion. It has the perspective that Ajahn Jamnian spoke of, of the great awareness that sees this dance of thoughts and feelings of praise and blame that make up our human life and receives them with mercy, with respect, with ease and openness. And this is the way to deal with the unruly ego. It's like Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said about the cow, the best way to control your cow is to give it a large, spacious meadow with lots of grass. <laughs> it doesn't mean you let the ego run wild in the sense of, all right, now I'm going to indulge every, you know, fantasy and every fear of the small sense of self. It's more like your pet, okay? You don't let it go wild, but you, you take care of it. You don't beat the puppy. There's some sense of middle path, of realizing that this is part of being a human being, and no one is free from occasional fear or confusion. It is our human nature. Spiritual life is a lot like gardening. The image from the Buddha often was that of the farmer planting the fields, planting the seeds. And in a certain way, in loving-kindness meditation, or in forgiveness meditation, or in mindfulness meditation, in the practice of awareness, you could say that we're planting the seeds in the garden of our heart, the seeds of presence and openness, of a ability to respect whatever arises, to meet it with respect. In fact, the seeds are a part of who we are. It's not like they're separate from us, but we're watering the garden or tending it, so what's beautiful in us can blossom. It is there in each of us to tend, to cultivate, to care for, and, you know, you can never really lose it. I mean, the garden might get overgrown with weeds. You might forget about it for a long time. It might seem impossible. But all you have to do is go in the garden and kind of 
till the soil a little bit, move some of the weeds out, and beautiful things will grow. It's never too late. The earth doesn't say, it's too late, you missed your chance. It really isn't too late. It's never too late to forgive. It's never too late to come back to the reality of the present. It's always here for us. I think that's enough words for tonight. I could go on and on with this pile of questions and I will take them and use them as themes for some talks later in the summer. Um, And I hope whatever stories I've told tonight or whatever fine questions that you put into the bowl are simply reminders to you to take the time to listen to your heart, to take the time to let your mind quiet and the heart open and the values of your own true nature, of your Buddha nature, to flower or blossom in your life. Yeah.